show is part of the Other Side Podcast Network. Welcome to the Admin Admin Podcast, episode 84, a podcast for IT professionals. Hi, I'm John. I'm Jerry. And I'm Stu. And in this episode, without Al, who sadly couldn't make this show this time, uh, we talk about what we've been up to. We talk about Git. And we also talk about Hashistack. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. And we're back for another recording. So I've had a fantastic week this week in which I took out my NAS and my home server all in, in one fell swoop in the evening, which was all good fun. And led to a lot of interesting questions from my children. Why is the TV not working? Why, where's the box gone that was there? Those sorts of questions. But if we'll, we'll talk about that a bit more in, in a bit more detail if, uh, if we get any time towards the end of this show. Stu, what have you been up to in the last couple, in the last few weeks? Um, so I mentioned last time that I was still working on the Ansible for networking blog post on Microtech. That's complete now and up and it was the most challenging one so far, to say the least. Since then, I'm taking a slight break from the networking stuff because I've done six posts in a row on it, and I'm back to doing console, salt stack, and Prometheus again, but I decided to do it against every operating system I can make it work with, so that includes most Linux versions, so, you know, Ubuntu, Debian, um, SUS, or all sorts, but then also including things like OpenBSD, including Illumos, which is based upon Solaris, uh, which included um, having to compile quite a lot to get it to actually work, and um, a few bits and pieces like that. Tried to include Slackware, but I still cannot make sense of it at the moment, so that, that one's going to have to wait a while. But uh, yeah, that that's what I'm uh, going to be working on next. So is this is it running all this stuff on those uh, OSs? Uh, yes. So um, some of them have console and salt stack in the repositories. Some of them you need to install it from Python for um, salt stack. Some of them you have to basically compile it from scratch, which, as I say, the uh, one that was based upon essentially Solaris took some getting to work. It took me a couple of days to get the node exporter built on that one, but I knew it worked because um, there's reference to Solaris metrics on their um, GitHub page. But yeah, trying to get that to work was um, a struggle to say the least. Um, but yeah, so far I've managed to get it all working. It includes Windows as well, and they're all all talking to the same console server, um, and Prometheus is picking them all up and monitoring them. So yeah, it's going to be an interesting post, that one. Nice. <laughs> I think we'll find a little bit more about what console is in a second because I've I've never worked with that one. So, uh, but we'll, we'll leave that just for a little while. Jerry, what have you been up to? Uh, so I, I started a new job, but I haven't got a lot to say about that at the moment because I've only just started and uh, they haven't chucked me in at the deep end. Uh, I haven't even committed any code yet, so probably talk about that in future podcasts. I was having a chat with the CTO this morning though, and apparently he's listened to the podcast, which. Which is great because <laughs> I mentioned it on my CV. So uh, uh, he's we've got another listener potentially. <laughs> so uh, hi, James. Just have to watch what you say in the Telegram channel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, other than that, I, I've been pottering around at home as we, we've all had a bit more time at home recently, and I've set up a ZFS mirror using. Well, so I I bought a NAS because um, I I got a couple of drives and my old NAS died 
um, after it actually made me quite sad that a, a piece of hardware dying uh, or sort of as in just not working anymore. But yeah, it's it was uh, I, I bought it I think with Nectar Points uh, about maybe about ten years ago, uh, and my and my kids watched so many you know films on it and when they were younger. So yeah, it was quite sad to see that go. But anyway, um, I took the drives out of it because uh, the drives were still fine, and I I was trying trying to work out how to get them get my new NAS to read the drives. Um, but my new NAS wanted to format the drives, which uh, didn't didn't really work for me because I'd lose all the data and I didn't have anywhere. I didn't have like a third drive to 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 put the data on. So I ended up getting a a two drive uh, USB thing. It's it, it's it's basically a thing for mirroring drives, and it has that functionality in hardware. But it also you can just plug it into USB and it and it will just uh, present your the two drives to the OS. So I decided to go with ZFS uh, and build a ZFS mirror. Um, there was still a bit of um, toing and froing with data, though, uh, having to copy the data off the drives, which are EXT4. Um, and I, I actually used SyncThing for that, and I had enough spare space on, on other machines to kind of move the data off, then format the drives as ZFS, <laughs> and then move them all back. Uh, yeah, so that was a bit of an adventure. Uh, especially, um, ZFS itself is really easy to, to set up as a mirror. You basically, you basically just say ZFS create, I think, uh, uh, create, I think it's even something like ZFS create mirror and then give it the, the drive names and, and that's it. It's done. It's pretty much done. There was an interesting bit when I had to, well, I, I decided to, basically break the mirror by taking one of the drives out, put the other EXT4 drive in, or sorry, put another EXT4 drive in, and then copy the data over. So I had to convince ZFS that there was actually half a mirror there and and convince it that, uh, sorry, convince the system that there was a half a RAID mirror there and just I'll sync the data across. Anyway, that was fun. Um, uh, So And then put the the other half of the mirror back in and it uh, resilvered it which is the the process for replacing a drive in an array um you you resilver the drive which is basically creating the other half of the mirror yeah so that all went went fine uh, and i've now got a, a lovely zfs mirror it's it's currently backing all the stuff up to backblaze um it's 1.8 terabytes of stuff uh, and it's estimating another 600 hours. So should be ready sometime in maybe in July. <laughs> so. Can I just quickly check? You said that you, when you transferred the data off the EXT drives to the ZFS um, or to something else, rather, you said you used sync thing. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So where were you syncing them to? Just to other machines? Yeah, other machines. So I had a, a, lap, a couple of spare laptops with uh, quite big drives and another another system somewhere i can't remember now <laughs> uh, but i had i had enough to to get that data off the drive and then reformat uh, so yeah I, I don't know if we talked about sync thing it's it's a bit of software that will just happily sync data over the network i have talked about it we have talked about it because uh, i can remember dave uh, used it as as a result of us talking about it or maybe he already knew about it but then he decided to use it for something 
I seem to recall in, in the Telegram channel for where we organized this, him sort of dropping in and saying, I, I know I've been, I, I've, I found out about this because I was listening to this whilst I was doing the edit and it made me realize that I needed to use it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a re- really nice bit of software. It, it yeah. runs as a, it runs its own web server. So you basically talk to it through, through your browser. Yeah. It's, re- it's, it's great. <laughs> uh, syncs data from one place to another, uh, really easy, easily and efficiently. Yeah, I've been a bit of big fan of sync thing for the past couple of years. I've been spending my time moving away from things like Dropbox and Google Drive and just trying to get a bit more control over my data and sync thing was the first place I went. And yeah, it's been brilliant. I've been a massive fan of it so far. One of the things that I found it to be really useful for, and it's such a, such a niche little thing, is you can get a version of sync thing for Android. And uh, my daughter's got a, an old cast off hand-me-down phone that the version of Dropbox doesn't support or rather it did support, but it didn't support reading from the SD card or writing to the SD card. So we couldn't back the photos up, which is effectively, so as she's got this cast me off phone that she basically uses a tablet and sort of wanders around and takes pictures and stuff with it. And I wanted to back those pictures up onto something else. And previously I'd used Dropbox for that, but got to this phone. It was like, Oh, okay. Uh, what can I use then? And sync thing actually was the tool that I went to in the end, because that could run on there uh, and it was still being developed and would work all right with the product. Anyway. So yeah. So, so I use that. It's such a random niche little thing. I did see one interesting use for on a YouTube video recently. It's um, learn Linux TV. The guy, he has every single V virtual machine he uses. And also his Linux laptops. He has the home folder. Well, some of the directories in it synced automatically. And when he's editing videos, it, turns up on his um, transcoding machines straight away the moment he saved it on his laptop things like that and just thought actually i could make use of something like that so yeah that's I, quite neat I'm, I'm i'm starting to do little things like that i've only got a, on a couple of machines now but it does mean that if i save it in one place the next time i go on the next one it's it's there straight away and you I mean yeah you know you can do sim- similar things with dropbox but this way it maintains your folder structure rather than you know having to mess around with the way dropbox wants to do it and stuff like that yeah plus so we Plus, your data is is yours as well. Exactly, not Dropboxes. Yeah. yeah. You saying there about uh, YouTube people? I've been catching up on Martin Wimpress's set of YouTube videos where he uh, was creating a script to put an Ubuntu desktop flavor onto an Ubuntu server image for Raspberry Pi, which actually matches over quite neatly with some of the stuff that I've been doing uh, with some of the videos I did probably about a month or so ago where I was actually creating a uh, virtual desktop environment in the cloud. And m- most of the time those desktop environments are basically just, cause you can only really get Ubuntu server images for cloud. You don't tend to get Ubuntu desktop images. So uh, I've been, because Martin Wimpress, uh, for those that don't know, he's the current, I think he's the release manager for the desktop images. So uh, I was watching his videos with uh, with some great interest actually, because uh, that would uh, that would that would solve my virtual desktop environment quite ni- neatly. But I've also been to test that out. I've been running that with uh, with Vagrant. Oh yeah. And uh, well, I think that's quite a, quite a neat little segue actually, because <laughs> one of the things we wanted to talk about we've we've kind of dropped a few hints uh, in in sort of the previous. Uh, sort of few comments is that we want to talk about some of the tools that uh, HashiCorp produce. And 
Stu, you, you, you sort of put this into the, uh, into the backlog. Do you want to sort of go through what, what HashiStack is? Uh, yeah, so the, um, HashiCorp do a lot of tools which are um, suited for things like your DevOps environments and cloud infrastructure. So um, although they're not specifically for that, but they do fit well, and a lot of people in the DevOps in, um, industry tend to use them. So the HashiStack in full would be Terraform, um, which we've talked about before on here. It would be Packer, which is used for creating machine images. It would be console, which you can use for things like service discovery as a key value store and all sorts of other things. Then there's Vagrant, which is for quick machine provisioning and for testing environments, which you've definitely used a lot more than I have, John. I know that for a fact. And they also have Vault, which is a secure store of things like passwords and configuration so you don't actually have to store your credentials and um, sensitive information in repositories and applications it can be used as a way of pulling in sensitive configuration that could be used at runtime but it can also the vault can also be locked as well so it means that if for whatever reason you know your infrastructure is um, taken over you can lock that vault and no one can actually get inside it and then they also do something called Nomad, which is kind of like Kubernetes Lite. It's a way of clustering um, machines together. I've not used it at all myself, and it doesn't seem that popular in the industry yet, but I think, unfortunately, Kubernetes got there first and has taken over the industry when it comes to containers and clustering. But I'd really like to try Nomad, actually. It's, yeah. Uh, it sounds really interesting. I think it can run containers and VMs. Yeah. It does look quite interesting. I've seen a few posts come out about it recently. I'm sure I saw something about Cloudflare using it, but I'm not, I, I might be mis, um, remembering that wrong. But um, yeah, it's it's the one tool that I have literally no familiarity with. Although I know it vaguely does clustering things, but yeah, that's pretty much the hash stack info at that point. Um, is is Vault as uh, complicated as everyone makes out? It is and it isn't. If it's already running, it's not too difficult to deal with. Essentially, you can use it as a a lot of things like Python and Golang and many other languages have ways of interacting with Vault um, out of the box. And you can even do it just with the API and um, passing a token. And, um, and all you're really doing at that point is saying, this is my token validate me and then give me back the next api call i'm going to make which could be something like secret slash my config or it could be secret slash terraform my config or something like that if you want to say store sensitive details in terraform well sorry make use of sensitive details in terraform but you don't want to store them with your terraform code vault vault's a good place to put that setting it up um, does take a little bit more and there's there's also something called the um, the unlock mechanism where you have five different keys for Vault and you need at least three of them to be able to open it back up again. It automatically starts closed and if you don't have at least three, then it stays closed. But once you've put them all in, it stays open until you say close it back up again, which more often than not, you're not going to do that unless um, you know these services have restarted completely or the machine's gone down or, as I say, someone's managed to um, compromise your network and you just go, right, that needs to close and so no one can get into it. But day-to-day usage, a lot of the helpers and tools that are out there make it quite easy to work with. Does it store uh, like single 
values or multi-line or data or, or what? It's it tends to be in JSON format. Um, that's how it natively deals with it. But you can just use it as um, you can input them in something called the Vault UI, um, and you can just put them as it. It gives you you know fields to fill in, but you will re- when it returns them, it will be in JSON format at that point. So as long as you're comfortable with dealing with JSON in the return, then you should be all right. And things like python for example will automatically turn them into a dictionary so you can then at that point just refer to it as you would any other dictionary if you're going to use it like that and uh, i guess it's got integration with things like terraform uh, other things in the the hashi stack yes so for example in terraform there's something called providers which for most things like aws means you're able to provision um things into aws or for azure and that kind of thing for vault you can actually create the secrets themselves or you can use it as a data source um Um, which is particularly useful to be able to say, right, okay, I've stored, say, I don't know, um, an OAuth token, or I have stored my some form of secret value like a AWS key or something like that that you want to be secure, um, but you need to use that somewhere in your Terraform. Um, So at that point, you can use a vault as a data source and then natively um, using... um, as we refer to any any other data sources, just put that in as a variable and then you can use it without actually storing it alongside your Terraform code, which I've started doing this week and it's actually really useful. I can imagine I've used um, Azure Key Vault with uh, data sources and you have to kind of read in each item from the Key Vault, I think, to to get your secret as a, as a data source and then you can use that elsewhere in your Terraform code. Yeah, they've definitely put some effort into making that work really well. I mean, I I played with it for the first time this week. And within ten, about 10 minutes, I already got it working and thought, right, I don't have to worry about that anymore. So Yeah, I've often, it was required for a few uh, contracts I went for in the past and I didn't have any knowledge of it. And I was kind of warned off it by everyone, <laughs> everyone <laughs> saying that they, they didn't really understand it and they, they wanted someone that could understand it. Yeah. So. No, it, it's it's definitely one of them things to get it set up in the first place is harder. Um, but once it's working, um, it it's actually quite easy to deal with at that point. But yeah, it's it, it, it's as with anything, a lot of the time the complexity is in the, uh, the setup in the first place. Once it's running, you tend not to have to worry much about it anymore. So we've mentioned Terraform. Uh, what is Terraform? Who, who, who wants to talk about Terraform? <laughs> so I use Terraform a fair bit at work at the moment. Terraform is a provisioning tool. Um, we've talked in the past about using Ansible for uh, deploying cloud infrastructure. What Terraform does is it has its own domain-specific language. Uh, it's a series of text files that are formatted in what they call um, HashiCorp configuration language, HCL. Um, and you use that, which is a... So you have a folder full of these HCL Terraform files. Uh, they all ended in .tf. Uh, and then you run a single, I think it's a Go binary. So it's cross-platform, works on Windows, Mac, and Linux. Um, and you run Terraform uh, in it to download any plugins that you need to be able to talk to things like Azure or AWS, data files, ESXi, and things like that. That's the that's the provider thing that we talked about earlier. Yeah. yeah. You run Terraform in it. It downloads all these providers, and then you do Terraform plan, or Terraform apply. And so plan will literally show you what all the things are that it's going to do. 
including uh, I think I think it might have even been Stu that mentioned in the past that it will show you in the later versions at least exactly what the actions are it's going to be performing you know in a, in a format you can copy and paste into another uh, Terraform file if you need to um, and then Terraform apply literally goes away and speaks to the APIs of all these different provisioning services and stands all the infrastructure up uh, and you can build uh, pretty much anything that AWS or Azure provide you can build those um because they've got the API integration in through this um, provider. Uh, so it's really, it's really quite a, a neat tool. The one thing that's quite scary about it is that um, there's a single state file that lives behind that. I was going to mention yeah. state. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This, so this single state file that lives behind kind of once you do your Terraform apply, um, it builds this state file up, which is basically what it believes the environment that lives behind it, you know, be on the, on the various different APIs looks like. Um, and if that gets out of sync with what the actual environment is, um, it can get a bit messy to fix that. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that scares people that tend to do more pets than cattle um, is that with one command, you can terraform destroy and it will just pull everything out that it's built, uh, which can be quite scary. Yeah. So, the, so yeah, the state file is, it, it took, took me a while to get the, get it to understand it properly, but it, it's basically a JSON, I think it's JSON representation of what the infrastructure was when Terraform last ran effectively. And mm. when you do that Terraform plan, it will basically work out the differences between the Terraform code that you've given it and the state that, that it believes is, is uh, sit, sitting in the cloud provider. And that, that can, as John said, that can get out of sync but it is possible now in in recent versions. I don't know if it was in the past to to do operations on that on that state. Other than actually going in and editing the JSON, you can do things like um, LS and and MV to, or maybe not MV, but RM. So so if you if if it's got a resource, if it thinks there's a resource there and there isn't, and it's erroring, you can go in and just pluck that out of the state which is quite handy. The other thing to say is um, about remote states. So um, it has a, uh, I think it's called backend in Terraform terminology. Mm. Um, you can actually store that state in that cloud provider's storage service. So S3 on AWS and blob storage or whatever on, um, on Azure uh, and, and so on. Um, and then that, what that means is that the either, if you're running Terraform from your laptop, you can go and pull that state from the, the actual cloud provider. So if someone else has run it, they've written to that state and then you're also referring to that state. So everyone's on the same, on the same page as it were. Obviously you might be running from CI CD. Uh, in that case, it, it, it just means that the state is, is somewhere not, not local um, and, and looked after by the cloud provider, which is, is probably better than on, on a hard drive somewhere. I suppose a point to note on that one is um, the state doesn't have to belong to, if you're using multiple providers, for example, which I've started doing this week across AWS and Azure, it doesn't have to belong in both providers. It can just belong in one of them. Essentially, it's just a place to store the state rather than specific to that cloud provider. 
Can it belong in both? Can you, can you write it to both at the same time? Potentially. I've not seen, I've not tried to do that yet, but it is potentially possible. But yeah, for example, at the moment, as I say, I'm doing, doing something at the moment. It's very little um, as your resources, but there is a couple of them. But me- mostly everything else is in AWS. So it made sense for the um, state to also be in AWS rather than create a, um, a blob storage just for, um, just for uh, a couple of bits when actually most of it's in AWS anyway. Cool. So, so we, we've got a little list here. So the next one on the list is uh, Packer. So what is Packer? Packer is a way of defining machine images. So in AWS, for example, they have something called an Amazon machine image, which is a ready-to-use virtual machine that you can customize um, with something like cloud in it um, by, def- um, by default in AWS. So you can take, say, a base Debian install or take a base Windows 2019 install and then use cloud in it to um, customize that. The problem there is it doesn't give you a lot to customize with and sometimes the amount of logic that you would have to stick in cloud in it would um, end up with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of lines of just trying to get to a decent state. Packer makes it so that you can take an off-the-shelf machine image, um, as I say, like a Debian one, customize it so it's more specific to what you're trying to do. So, for example, it's got your monitoring demons on there. So for us, um, something like the Prometheus node exporter, for example, you can have that on um, by default. You could install things like console or you could do things like put certain um, Ansible playbooks on there for um, for if you wanted to do something like bring up a Kubernetes node rather than starting from scratch, you can just get it so it's already at the point that it just needs some variables provided within cloud in it to run a couple of things rather than having to do absolutely everything from just a base Debian install. So just to jump in there, uh, cloud in it is just something that runs on the first boot of the of your instance. Basically, when when instance first boots, it, it'll run. It's a simple configuration language. It's actually YAML, uh, and you can do you, you can do some things like adding users and stuff by just putting them in YAML, or you can run arbitrary stuff like shell scripts and or even Ansible. Yeah, I mean, if you use um, cloud config, which is kind of a um, a language that some of the machines understand. You can actually do some quite complex things with it. But as I say, the problem there is you bring in a machine that is from literally as a base install of an operating system up to where you need it to be to run an application, which if you're in a world where things need to scale out, um, waiting 10 to 15 minutes for all the package to, packages to install, all your playbooks to run, all that kind of thing, compared to a machine almost being ready to go straight away, um, that's where your differences come in. So what Packer will do is you can get it to take a off-the-shelf machine image and then you can run you can run shell scripts, you can run Ansible, you can run um, salt stack, and, and in the case of Windows, you can also run um, PowerShell commands, things like that. Get the machine up to the state you want it to be and then commit it back to your cloud provider. And then at that point, you have your own, um, almost like a golden image for whatever you're going to use it for. So... Like, you know, say you wanted something like a, a Jenkins worker or something like that, you could get it so it's got everything installed, ready to just come come up and straight away the Jenkins master can talk to that and um, not have any problems rather than, as I say, having to start from scratch every time. Yeah, I've, I've been using it with uh, 
using Packwood Linode recently, um, and unfortunately Linode only lets you store three images, and right. that's it. And uh, it limits you to, like I think, six gig for the total amount of data, which is unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, Packer can work with quite a lot. I mean, uh, I was mentioning AWS, but it can do it with most of the cloud providers. It can do it with ESXi. It can do it with... Um, at Proxmox, I've not tried that one yet, but we are we use Pro- Proxmox where we are, so that's probably something I'm going to try soon. So, essentially, it's a way rather than just being you know cloud native, it's a way of generating your golden images for certain tasks, or just as I say, taking some of the work out of bringing a machine up in the first place. It, um, it it just means that you know you click on new virtual machine, and then at that point, you've got ninety percent of your work done. You just need to provide a couple of variables to bring it up to where you need it to be. Yeah, so those are, I think those are called builders in uh, Packer terminology. Yeah. The the way of talking to the cloud provider or the, the the VM provider. Yeah. The other thing is that the config is in JSON, which is uh, well, it's fairly unusual, I'd say. So <laughs> I tend to write mine in YAML and then convert it to JSON just because it's easier. Yeah, I, I saw. I was listening to. Um, I think it was the last week in AWS podcast. Uh, year or so ago and it had got um Mitchell Hashimoto who's the one who started um Ashikorp and he was saying that they initially started with I think it was I think Vagrant might have been the first product I could be remembering it wrong and yeah. it was um Ruby like language and they went actually this wasn't the right way we'll go with JSON because that's a um, machine readable language and then people complained it wasn't um it um, wasn't great to deal with so that's when they came up with things like the hashicorp um hcl the uh, conf- hashicorp configuration language i think early versions of terraform were json as well or they could be t- t- uh, json or hcl yeah I, 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 I was in it from the terraform 11 days so yeah i've not seen it that early on actually so yeah but uh yeah the it, it all being in json it, it takes you a bit to get your head around because as i say json is a machine readable language um it's a bit harder for a human to read it i mean it's you know it's obviously not impossible um but it's harder for a human to write it than read it, it exactly yeah <laughs> yeah the, the amount of times you'll do something and forget a colon or for, forget put an equal sign or something like that and it just breaks yeah. everything and it's just yeah well, double quotes is my thing yeah <laughs> That's one of the downsides to doing JSON from working with Ansible because Ansible just kind of fixes up any JSON issues. So yeah, I always get single quotes instead of double quotes because that's what you're working with mostly on in Ansible. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I end up with, I end up making a proper mess of JSON. You can also have uh, a JSON in YAML. <laughs> so, so you can like express a, a list as a JSON list as with square brackets and, uh, items with commas, or you can have it as a YAML list, which is, uh, mm. again, fairly un- unusual, <laughs> I'd say. <laughs> uh, uh, we talked about Vagrant, uh, we mentioned Vagrant there. So, uh, John, I know you've done some stuff with Vagrant. <laughs> just, just a little bit, just a little bit. Um, so Vagrant is, um, a way of automating. It originally started as a, a wrapper around uh, VirtualBox. It has been extended to other hypervisors. And effectively, the Vagrant file uh, specifies a box. And a box is just um, a file comprised of the hard disk image for your virtual machine uh, and some configuration detail. It's not too dissimilar from how um, an OVF file 
might be uh, so an OVA file might be shipped to you. Um, so in that case, you get the, the disk file and you get some configuration for it. Um, the nice thing about Vagrant is that it's like it will stack. Um, like you can, you can stack another configuration file on top of it. So what you typically see with, with Vagrant is you'll see a Vagrant file shipping, um, in a, in a directory. And that defines how the virtual machine will be configured beyond that initial kind of, uh, config file that was shipped with the disk. So you don't tend to see the disk, the box files. You just tend to see that it's specified a name of a box file. So I started working with Vagrant relatively early on when, when you just shipped around the disk images, which is why I know a little bit more about what you tend to see inside it. But, uh, Vagrant files, uh, are a configuration, a configuration file that specifies how you, how many machines you want to stand up, how much uh, RAM and CPUs you want to attach to that image. Uh, over and above what it, the defaults are, which I think is 500 megamon CPU. And, uh, then which network interfaces do you want to attach to it? One of the frustrations for me about Vagrant is that because of how the Vagrant file has to work, you always get a NAT interface assigned to that virtual machine, particularly if you're working with local hypervisors like uh, VirtualBox. I don't know so much about using the cloud hypervisors because I've not, not really looked at those, but so, but so what you can end up with is, is, um, a, a short text file that says, I want you to provision a single machine or two machines or five machines, um, with these sets of this, with this configuration. So that's, you know, RAM CPU and base OS, and then you can have what they call provisioners, which then run once the virtual machine is spin, spun up. There isn't a provisioner that does cloud init files, um, which makes it a bit tricky if you want to use Vagrant as like a, a proving ground for some of the other things that you're working with. But you can use shell scripts, which effectively is fairly similar to what, what, what I tend to do with cloud init files is usually run a shell script. Uh, but you can also explicitly say, I want to run an Ansible playbook on this machine, or I want to run a chef script or a, I think salt's another provisioner that comes out of the box. And so what you'll tend to see is in particularly in code projects where you need a full virtual machine, but not a cloud image, or if you're working with, if you're talking to people that are doing development and they want all their development machines to look the same, what you'll tend to see is a vagrant file that ships with the development environment, the development code they want to run. Uh, so your developers will vagrant up the development machine. So they're all working on the same style of development machine. Do you guys think I've missed anything in that? Yeah. I, I wanted to expand a bit on cloud providers because it's not kind of immediately obvious when you read the documentation, it's very much geared to standing up a VM on your local machine for testing, yeah. but it's, is I found it really useful uh, specifically because my last laptop didn't really have enough RAM. So I would test everything on DigitalOcean in, in my case, just because it, it, it it was probably the cheapest just uh, so it will it's, it's a plug-in kind of architecture to to allow allow it to talk to these cloud providers uh, and yeah it's it's just um it's it's very similar to the the sort of virtual box wrapper that, that vagrant originally was but it it will you know you can say i want this this size of image i want to i i'd want to sync the uh, well, another bit of functionality that Vagrant has is it will copy the 
contents of of the directory that the vagrant file sits in to a directory on the VM. Um, either either mount it via NFS or or sync it across or, or, and that kind of thing. And yeah, I, I just found it really useful for for testing um, Ansible roles and things like that. Now I've got a laptop with a bit more RAM. Uh, I actually use KVM because I'm on Linux rather than a virtual box. And, and again, that's another plugin, I think, to, to get out, that, get that working. And yeah, you, you, you can, um, yeah, you, you can specify all these, 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 uh, things, uh, you know, amount of memory and number of CPUs and things. It's, it's kind of like a, you, rather than talking directly to the hypervisor, it's, it's like a go between, uh, between the hypervisor and or the cloud provider. Um, yeah, and I yeah, so I I've really used it more with cloud providers than on, on my local machine. Weirdly, so before I started looking properly at Docker, pretty much any time when I needed to separate off sort of the concerns between uh, you know uh, what the application was that I was going to run and the virtual machine I wanted to run it on, pretty much when I couldn't before I started looking at Docker. Every new application I wanted to work with went into a Vagrant machine, um, just because it was a quite an easy and conceptually simple way of saying this is not something that's running on my local machine; it's running in another machine. But without having to think about, I need to install Ubuntu or whatever on that virtual machine. Yeah, I, um, I use I also use it for my Ansible tests. So I. Uh, when I got round to writing a test directory in an Ansible role, I'll put a Vagrant file in there just to bring up the VM to test it on. Um, so if if you look at my Ansible roles uh, on my GitHub or whatever, they'll often have a Vagrant file in the the test directory. Oh, that's quite useful. So which which parts of the hashy hashy stack are we missing there? Uh, so I think we've we've got um, oh we uh, console. That, I think that's the the last one uh, on the list yeah so Stu I think you're the only one out of us that's really used console so can you can you advise us on what this one is the problem with console is it's got about four different parts to it and I've only used one or two of them so yeah I'll go into it as what what I can but console is a way of you can either use it as a configuration store so um, rather than just you know storing configuration in one place you can have um, the it's using something called raft to distribute it across multiple nodes. And then at that point, if one of the nodes disappears, you still have something highly available to pull this configuration from. So it can be something like a key value store or something similar like that. For people that are familiar with Kubernetes, they have they use um, etcd for um, similar purposes as a distributed config store. What console also can do is um, use something called service discovery. So you can give it um, either a, a file with a small bit of JSON in it to say, um, this node that is running console has these services. So it could say something like, um, it's got Nginx running on port 80, or it could be um, all, all sorts of things. Or um, as I've used it, you could use it to say, this... Um, machine it's running on has a node exporter for prometheus on and it's also got an nginx exporter for nginx and then at that point it says all the monitoring demons that are running on on here and then at that point you can point something like prometheus or something else to it to say 
uh, sorry, to the to console itself. And at that point, Prometheus will discover from console what exists in your network and what services are running at that point. So it means that rather than you having to manually configure anything to say, these are the services that I know about, something, um, so you could use something like, say, Salt or Ansible to configure console on the machine itself it tells the rest of the console cluster, I guess it's called, or it might be data sense, I might be remembering the terms wrong, as to what services are available. And then, say Prometheus at that point just goes, all right, okay, I know that in this entire cluster, there are these machines that are running these services. That is what I've got to monitor. So it means that you don't have to um, start getting into the nitty-gritty of defining your configuration manually at that point and defining things like well as we found a few times at our job things not getting monitored because someone you know did 20 boxes and uh, missed out um, you know box 17 from the monitoring because they was busy doing other things things like that at this point the boxes themselves are actually um, informing the network about what's running on them rather than the other way around now, console also does something called a service mesh, which I have very little experience with. I just know it exists, and I'm not going to get too heavily into that. All I know is that a service mesh is a way of, say, in Kubernetes land, you have multiple services available. A service mesh is a way of saying, right, okay, I know these ones are available. They exist. I can now go to here to consume them. Beyond that, I, I still get a little confused with service meshes myself, so I can't really get much further into it. But the way I've tended to use it is a way of, um, as I say, automatically adding monitoring to boxes. So, for example, in my workplace at the moment, we use Salt to configure our environment. And in the proof of concepts that I'm currently running, every machine that gets deployed from Salt automatically also gets a monitoring daemon added and added into the console cluster, meaning that the monitoring system already knows what exists out there because it's talking to console somewhere and some and somewhere within console is the service so yeah bit of a long-winded explanation no it's really good so yeah so that's quite a quite an in-depth look into well uh, an in-depth look into what your options are with HashiStack. One of the nice things that I've found with HashiCorp is that they tend to try really hard to make sure all of their products are cross-platform. So you can run all of these things on Windows, on Mac, on Linux. I mean, especially Terraform, which is sort of a Go binary, so it just runs the same on both. Vagrant is uh, a Ruby executable, so there's there's lots of sort of capabilities there to to extend the platform out. The others, I think, are, are relatively straightforward to to deploy in alternative environments is that would that be a fair statement to make definitely i mean uh, as as i was saying earlier about um deploying console and salt stack across a number of different things like solaris based stuff um console on their um website for it automatically comes out with a solaris release which i've not seen much actually come out with a solaris release nowadays so um yeah that was quite an easy one to install for example you'll often find these tools in any any sort of um devopsy sort of modern infrastructure type place really so it's worth getting familiar with them i'd say so i think we've covered that pretty well one of the one of uh, going for the going for the awkward um uh, segue again so all of these tools are usually based on uh, text file things one of the nice things about text files is they can all be committed 
quite neatly into a Git repository or other version control system of your choice. And in fact, that's part of the reason why I got started with Vagrant was because a lot of the projects I was working on were literally just shipping around a Vagrant file in their code repository for you know testing and things like that. So I thought we'd we might also have a little bit of a chat about um, using Git and sort of fixing a few Git issues if you come across them. So the the thing that really triggered this for me was actually I came across a website. Um, it has got a slightly rude title, um, uh, which is ohshitgit.com. Uh, um, there is if you if you wanted to use it at work and you have filters against things like that on your on your uh, proxies, there's a, another website called dangitgit. D a n g it git.com which effectively is exactly the same stuff as you get in oh shit git where they swap the swap the uh the word shit with dang uh you know it's, it's, it's horses for courses as they say but it, uh, it's got some quite useful little things in there like you know um if you've accidentally committed the the wrong file to a repository it gives you the inf- instructions on how to actually um you know wind history back and uncommit things or um if you need to change a commit message there's it's just lots of little snippets of git config lines that can help you get out of a bind yeah so i mean the thing i've definitely found that um whilst working with git which has only really been in the last four four years or so it's been around uh written by linus torvalds uh originally it's been around for about 13 years i think uh or if not longer um and you tend to do the same operations over and over again when you're using git um mainly committing perhaps branching um and and so on but when you come across something that you did wrong or you didn't mean to do or you need to get back to another bit of the the history um that's when you need this website <laughs> yeah very much so i mean there's there's a a relatively famous XKCD comic about Git, which says something along the lines of, he says, rapidly tapping on his keyboard to apologize. I'm apologizing for the noise that you may be hearing whilst I'm talking, which says, this is Git. It tracks collaborative work on projects through the beautiful distributed graph theory tree model, to which somebody replies, cool, how do we use it? And the first person says, no idea, just memorize these shell commands, type them into sync up. If you get errors, save your work elsewhere, delete the project and download a fresh copy. And then it says, if that doesn't fix it, git text contains the, te- the phone number of a friend of mine who understands it. Just wait, <laughs> wait through, wait through a few minutes of, it's really pretty simple. Just think of branches as dot, dot, dot. And eventually you'll, you'll learn the commands that will fix everything. Git has a bit of an image problem. I think it's fair to say in that people think that git is github and github is git and they're they're quite different things and then when people get their head around the fact that git is not github they're then confronted with this command line interface that seems massively overwhelming i mean until quite recently most of the editors didn't have sort of inbuilt git support and if they did it was kind of clunky and you know loosely added on but actually there's some, some really good integrations with IDEs like Visual Studio Code and, um, you know, tools like Atom, things like that, where they'll actually do things like LA to make you commit messages inside the editor. You know, you can see what the changes are between one commit, uh, between, uh, head, which is where your code repository is up to and the staging tree or between the staging tree and 
what's in your working directory, the stuff that hasn't been committed to your, to your version control system. And, and like Jerry said, there's, there's a few standard commands like git, git add, git commit. Some people think themselves somewhat adventurous if they start looking at things like uh, git log and git merge and things like that. But there's, there's actually an awful lot of infrastructure that lives underneath the sort of the, the basic git command. The, the main thing that I, th- I tend to use that really throws people off, um, is actually submodules, uh, which is like a, a nested Git repository inside another Git repository. That, I mean, I, I should say, like, um, that's another thing that uh, people have said, oh, leave, don't, don't go anywhere near submodules. They're too complicated, but uh, they're, they're actually just a way of saying this Git repository lives at this location inside this other Git repository. As, as yes. far as I can work out, yeah. The the one thing that happens with Git submodules is if the Git submodule goes wrong, um, for whatever reason, it becomes, it can be very easy to get lost inside the project as to where things have gone wrong, because so one of the things when you do when you do a Git clone or a Git init, so those are the two commands that. Um, put a new repository on your file system. Git clone pulls it from somewhere else, whether that's a local file tree in your file system or a remote web service like GitHub or GitLab or, you know, your own hosted environment. Um, Git init literally just says, I'm going to make a new directory and everything that's in, nothing's been added to the tree yet. Whereas Git clone says there's something that's in the tree and you're going to start working on it. But, so once you've cloned or created this this init directory, if something inside the the, the submodule that you've added or you've pulled down from there, if you want to go and start looking for where the config is for that that submodule or the, the bits that live under the surface of Git, if you need to go and start poking at those, you have to go into a completely different place from where you look with a normal Git repository. Um, so so I think and that can be quite complicated to get your head around. The other thing as well with Git submodules is that they check out at a specific commit rather than you used to, when you do a Git, and when you go into a Git repository, it being at a specific, you know, the head of a branch called master or development or my feature or something like that. A submodule is pinned at a specific commit and to get it out of that specific commit, takes a bit of work to do. No, it doesn't take a bit of work. It gets, takes a bit of headspace to understand how to get it out of that state. Part of the reason for using something like Git is because it is a version control system. So you can roll back through time, through commits to see, you know, what changed between one date and the next, between one commit and the next. Who made that change? Why was that change made? When it was made. When was it made? Yeah. Equally, the other thing that you can do is if you've realized that you've made a mistake in a file, what you can do is you can say, ah, I need to pull a previous version of that file back, or I need to pull the version of the file that was at this commit into this, into where I am now. And whilst what you can do is just download the file and paste it in and do stuff, there are actually git commands and, and that dang it git website actually lists a few of those commands that you can do to get that specific version of the file or some specific lines from that version of the file into your existing uh, repository. The other thing about using a 
a version control system is that there are there's things called commit hooks. So sorry, hooks rather. And typically you'll see this as one of two things, either a pre-commit hook. So on your local machine, before you actually finish the commit command, you can make git run some uh, checks on that on that tree to make sure that you've not added something that breaks your rules. So the typical one that I've seen with this is um, what they call linting. And lint is basically um, just checking to make sure there's nothing stupid in the, in the file you're working with. So uh, have all of my YAML files got the right number of indentations? Are there any references in there to another YAML part of the array and things like that? Because you can do that with the YAML files. Or you might have, you know, in Python, because Python's very space sensitive and how deep, how deep indentations are and things like that. Or, you know, are all my PHP files, are they all terminated properly with the brackets and the curl braces and stuff like that? But then there's a post commit hook, which is after you've made that commit, what happens next? And what you'll tend to see is on Git hosting services like GitHub and GitLab, they can actually use those post commit hooks to trigger actions in something like um, a continuous integration system. So you might have, when you've done your commit and you've pushed it to your remote repository, that post commit hook actually will fire off unit testing on all the code in your repository, or it might cause uh, something like um, a Sphinx or something like that to actually index all your documentation or create documentation and potentially even use that that commit action uh, and your CI/CD system to actually push that into live or create binaries to put into a downloads directory or something like that. Is there anything that I've missed, do you think? Uh, I don't think so. It's actually very timely at the, um, that because I'm at the moment, one of my projects uh, where I am now is GitLab Pipelines, which is their CI/CD. Uh, well, it can be CI/CD, but we're using it for um, CI and that makes use of them post commit hooks and you can do not just um you know simple you know run a script kind of thing you can do all sorts like at the moment i've got a um building a .NET container and then at that point it runs unit tests on it and then it will um, push that uh, container to an artifact repository that can then be used later at that point. Um, you can do all sorts of things with um, GitLab pipelines and I know GitHub Actions is also quite similar in that respect as well. Mm. One of the interesting things about it is if you use branches which are rather than you're working on the master branch at all times, which is essentially where all the code is supposed to be to begin with. A branch is a way of taking that code and um, working on it separately without updating the master branch. And then at that point, once you're ready to make your changes to the code, you can uh, merge it in, which in GitHub terms is something called a pull request, where you say, I want you to pull this code into the master repository or in um, GitLab terms, it's called a merge request, which is you want to merge this code or what you've changed into the master branch. And with something like GitLab pipelines, and I'm assuming GitHub Actions, I've not looked at it yet, you can do things that are only done on merge requests, for example. So you can say, if it's coming out of master, 
um, no one should be committing to master directly anyway, at which point we don't have to run all the tests in case, you know, someone's updated the documentation in there or something like that. You know, say, say you know, the owner of the repository's done that. Whereas if someone that's a developer and is working on the actual code for what's going to be released, then it will go through unit testing. It will go through building it and making sure it actually builds a valid container, for example, and then it will push an artifact out as long as as long as everything's working. So yeah, it's um it's it's quite an interesting usage of it at that point. It's uh, just out of interest. Is GitLab pipelines is that uh, GitLab.com or because. Uh, GitLab can obviously be self-hosted or you can use that. You, you can do it on both. So GitLab.com has their own concept of shared runners, which I believe, and I could be wrong on this one, they run on DigitalOcean in the back end, but I know that they run them on GCP right now, but I'm sure I've seen that they used to run on DigitalOcean, but might be, you know, age-old documentation. If you run GitLab yourself, uh, self-hosted, you can run a GitLab runner yourself or multiple of them. And these GitLab runners are what then runs the containers, runs the tests, builds things. And essentially all they need to be is something that can run Docker. And then you run a command on them to register themselves with your GitLab instance. And then you can run the jobs on that. And um, usefully, it doesn't just have to be a standard, you know, say in AWS terms, it doesn't have to be a, an EC2. It could be something that's running on your container orchestration platform. So if you're using Kubernetes or if you're just using something basic like uh, just standard Docker or AWS's um, ECS, which is essentially managed Docker rather than um, Kubernetes, you can run the GitLab runners in that and then you're not having to stand up dedicated virtual machines for things like this. Yeah, because in the, in the past I've used GitLab CI, so I'm not sure if it's just like a rebranding or something, that, or something like I, that. I think GitLab CI is basically the same thing, but pipelines I think is what they're referring to as the language now that you use for it. So yeah, it's it, I, th- I think there's a bit of a merging of terms that I'm using as well because we're we're doing something called build pipelines in GitLab and then, yeah, I'm, I'm probably merging about right. 20 different <laughs> terms all over the place right now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and uh, also GitLab CI can talk directly to Kubernetes, I think, yes. uh, uh, which is handy. Yeah. In the most recent version, they can now talk to AWS's um, ECS, their managed Docker service as well, which we've not used yet, but we're probably going to. Um, but yeah, once we're up and running properly with Kubernetes, which we're still in progress, despite being a year after I was um, starting it all up, once that's all fully up and running, I think we're probably going to get um, GitLab deploying straight to uh, Kubernetes at that point. I did want to mention that you can do all this um, merging, branching and merging and so on, just on the command line if you wanted to. The main sort of function of, of pull requests slash merge, merge requests is really for sort of collaborating on on code. So you might um, write a, a feature uh, so you'd branch off at that point, do all your commits and whatever and, and get it all working maybe on your local machine and then commit that to GitLab or GitHub. And then at that point, you, you do the merge request and the pull request, and then other people can then comment on on your changes and say, you know, maybe make suggestions or um, you, you can even start up discussions and things like that. Uh, and then you make the merge um, within GitLab or GitHub. Um, and then the repository, you then... Uh, pull the repository back to your local machine to get a, an up-to-date version of the code. So say you, you, uh, you'd branched off and then, then you wanted to merge back to master. 
create a pull request or a merge merge request, do all that, merge it um, remotely, if you like, and then pull that down back to your local machine just to sort of expand a bit on the whole pull request merge request thing yeah it's it, it's something i've noticed if you um if you push to a branch that isn't master on something like gitlab or not sure on github actually but on gitlab it definitely returns that you can now create a merge request from this but it gives you a url yeah. to do it with you don't you don't yeah. do the gitlab merge request natively from the command line i think there's a tool that exists for it now i think there's i think there's one for github called hub and i think someone's basically made a copy of it for gitlab called lab but uh, yeah, most of the time you're basically going to be managing the merge requests themselves or the pull request from the um, UI at that point rather than the um, CLI. I think in GitLab, the master branch is protected by default, yeah. so you can't push to it by default. Yeah. And yeah, just so with that, um, it'll return on the command line that link that you talked about. And then you can just click on the link and it takes you straight to a merge request page that you can just... Uh, get going with a merge request and send that URL to someone to comment on your code or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely not something that's in GitHub at the moment. I'm most of my stuff that I do end up, ends up on GitHub rather than GitLab and doing a pull request is something that, so in the web interface for GitHub, when you've pushed to a branch, uh, there'll be a banner that comes up saying you've recently pushed to this branch do you want to compare that? Do you want to do a pull request or compare what's in here with master? Or, you know, do you want to compare this to a fork? It's worth noting actually that in GitHub terminology, a fork is basically where you've copied the repository from somebody else's tree. So for example, um, if I'm working on something that uh, Jerry's done, Jerry might have it in his Git repo. Uh, I can then go into his Git repo and click on the fork button there, and that will copy that repository at that point in time into my user area. So it's copying not not just so it's copying all the branches, uh, basically yes. cloning the, the the whole thing. And, and I think pull requests and things, is it? Or it doesn't touch the pull oh, request. Okay. So it's literally just the the code tree. Uh, it might be some of the settings, but it definitely isn't the 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 issues, pull requests, and things like that. And it also has some kind of reference back to the original project as well. Yes. But yeah, so if you're working on, so, but, so yeah, so if I've gone into my fork of, say, Jerry's repository and I commit to master, it will invite me to create a pull request back to Jerry's master. If I commit to a, a branch that is not master or not the, the main branch for that project, it will invite me to create a pull request back to my master branch before it's then offering to commit that master branch to up to uh, sorry create a pull request back to jerry's master branch all gets a bit recursive and it's definitely tripped me up a few times but um it's definitely well worth having a sort of play around with yeah i mean if you're doing any kind of infrastructure as code i would suggest um putting that into git it's i think it's installed by default on on all the major linuxes and yeah, you'll you'll thank yourself if you if you get into the habit of committing stuff, you'll thank yourself one day when you do something wrong and you, then you can roll back. Yeah, I mean it's it's well worth mentioning as well that most of these Git repositories have an inbuilt wiki, and effectively, if you're used to if you've used wikis before, effectively all that a wiki is is just using a version control system for a web page. 
So some of the projects that I've seen are they're, they're, they're heavily in trying to encourage the designers and the developers and the documentation people to get used to using Git as well so that they're committing their things rather than asking somebody that does, you know, the web development or, you know, the backend stuff to, to add their code. It's not just about code. It's about more than just code. So it's documentation. It's about images, CSS files, anything really is well worth having using your version control system. If, even if it's, I mean, it's, it's hard to think of it these days, but you know, um, when I first started getting involved in open source software, you know, Git wasn't a thing that people were using. And I remember having a conversation with somebody at one conference um, that I was at. And so the, there was somebody there that said to me, well, I don't see the point of using version control system. There's only the two of us there. And I was like, well, that's perfect. You know, there's the two of you there. How do you know that what you're working on isn't something that they've already made changes to and vice versa, you know? Um, and how do you know that the change that you've made is been done for a valid purpose that isn't the change that somebody else would be working on. Because that's the other thing about these version control systems is that there is a log of every change that was made and who who made that change, why that change was made. So if you want to see whether or not somebody's worked on feature request number one or that somebody's reported a bug, bug number one, you can go and have a look and see whether that bug number one has actually been actioned if, whether something's been committed against it to try and fix that problem. There's even uh, integrations. So if you use Jira, you can integrate that with um, GitHub and GitLab and so on, uh, so that your ticket number, you, you'll actually have a thing on the on the Jira page saying, referencing the branch, uh, you know, if you, if you branch, um, so you, mm. you can branch with the, the branch name with the of the ticket number or the ticket ID, and then it'll automatically work out and tell you what, and so give you a clickable thing to see what's changed and so on, which is quite handy. Yeah, it's quite neat. Bose, one thing that is probably worth mentioning is it's probably not going to be a factor much anymore, but version control doesn't automatically mean Git as well. There are things like SVN and Mercurial and things like that, but in pretty much all cases nowadays, what you're going to find is Git. It's just, yeah, I've walked into places that say we use version control, and then when I saw SVN, I thought, what is that? I've never, and yeah, I, I wasn't around in the early days of SVN, so just trying to get my head around it was, did take some doing, to say the least. I was around when people were moving from CVS to SVN. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't actually start using version control until a lot later. I remember working with, well, so talking to a good friend of mine called Lorna, and she said that she was going to engagements where they were using subversion. Um, and because she would typically travel down there by train, she would get down there, do a subversion clone to git and work on the stuff offline on the journey back work on it at home and then when she came back down by train the next day or the you know the next week she could then sync her changes back into the tree because of the fact she was using git with subversion and i kind of found that quite a hard thing <laughs> to wrap my head around at the time but actually it makes an awful lot of sense you also mentioned mercurial mercurial was widely considered to be the best distributed version control system there was, but effectively it's become the Betamax yeah. of, uh, of of the version control story. I think Bitbucket still supports Mercurial. Well, it was it was created to do 
the mercurial version of GitHub. Oh, uh, okay. They started out as being a mercurial code hosting service. I suppose an interesting one on that is um, there's a project called Heptapod, and that's effectively GitLab, but rather than Git, it's using Mercurial in the back end, and it's actually supported by some of the people at GitLab. They're uh, helping actually bring it up, up to scratch, so it's only something like a few point versions behind um, the full GitLab release, so it's quite interesting mm-hmm. seeing it. I mean, I've I've not used Mercurial before, but looking at some of the terminology, I can see why people like it, and uh, yeah, I just saw that saw that um you know a few months ago and just thought what is this all about and yeah as i say it is effectively if you logged into it you would think you were in gitlab but then just going what are these terms i've never seen these before Hmm. that's interesting heptapod is a reference to uh, the aliens in arrival the film arrival or uh, yeah i mean one one last thing to say about git i mean it's it's probably it's ancient history now if you like but um it was quite groundbreaking because the whole branching process in previous uh, version control systems was to basically take what your your code in the branch you're working on and and physically copy it to another branch um whereas git does sort of clever clever stuff <laughs> and and a branch is effectively just another commit or it's or it's a pointer to another commit so it, it's very cheap to branch whereas in other in earlier version control systems it, it definitely wasn't yeah, I definitely remember having conversations with people and they were like, a branch was almost considered a heresy. You know, you, you did it as an absolute last resort. Part of the way that, that branching is so, is so particularly quick in, in at least Linux is that definitely in the beginning, a branch was effectively just a, um, hard link of files from the objects directory and the .git directory. So you'd, it would basically hard link the versions of the files. So it wasn't re, it wasn't copying files anywhere. It was literally just saying, oh, the file you want here is actually that file over there. And so it wasn't storing those two things twice on the disk. It was just storing it once. So that's how that works. It's quite similar. The company I've just started working for is, is uh, block ch- does blockchain, uh, basically. And reading through the documentation there it's quite similar the whole the way that git works it seems quite similar to the, the their implementation of blockchain anyway so interesting well that's because interesting so that's because effectively blockchain more or less uses the concepts that were popularized by git which is that every block that is minted has a parent block. So you can always trace the lineage of that block all the way back. And if the, if your blockchain forks for whatever reason, it should be able to work out how to remerge everything back together again. Now, the problem is, is that usually if your blockchain, blockchain has forked, it's because somebody's trying to do something with one side of the chain that you don't want them to do. So if it, can merge back in it's probably double spent stuff so that's a problem but that's why people see forking of blockchain blockchains as being such a big problem because ultimately what happens is the chain that's got the most recent commit to it the end of the 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 head of that branch that's got the most recent commit is actually the current head of the whole blockchain so if you've got if you've got spends on the other side of that on the other side of that fork, they're lost. Mm. 
or at least that's my understanding. As you said, you're working for a firm that's doing that, so I might have got that completely <laughs> wrong, but that's the way I understood I'll it. I'll let you know in a few months' time when I, I get my head around it. <laughs> and when you've made your first million back. <laughs> Maybe, Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. It's, not, it's not a cryptocurrency, yeah. <laughs> just to, just to uh, oh, put right, that okay. out there. <laughs> well, I think we've, uh, we've gone pretty, uh, pretty long on this one, um, and I think, I think we're probably kind of coming reasonably close to the end of this. I'll hold off on talking about my great NAS adventure for another time, but I think it's time to start wrapping things up. So, uh, Stu, is there anything you want to mention? Right. Yep. Dave does our audio production, which we're very thankful for. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's dealt with a couple of my mic issues already. So yeah, thank you on that one. And, um, also we are now proud members of the other side podcast network. And, um, if you want to see more details on that, go to the other side dot network. I'd like to thank our Patreons as I do every episode. So that would be Andamo, Andy, Dave, Maha, Mike, Stuart, other Stuart, and Yannick. Thanks very much, guys. That's you. You keep us afloat. So uh, from my side of things, as always, we do uh, actively welcome any feedback from uh, from our, our our broad spectrum of listeners, uh, including. Um, Jerry's new CTO. So uh, thank you for listening. If uh, if you want to give specific performance feedback, <laughs> please uh, please feel free to make it public through the uh, through this podcast. But it, on a more serious note, we've covered two relatively big subjects in this podcast, and uh, obviously none of us knows everything. Uh, so if there is anything that you think we've missed that you want other people to know about, if there's specific resources that you think are really relevant that we should be sharing with anyone, or even if you just want to tell us that we'd got it all wrong and we should be focusing on Martin Wimpress's version of uh, bash version of vagrant or something like that, then uh, please, uh, please, please feel free to, to educate us at great length. If you want to send feedback to us by email, you can do by emailing mail at adminadminpodcast.co.uk or we have a Telegram group uh, and you'll find the link to that in our show notes and on our website. If you've got any questions that you want us to answer, if you want, if there's anything you want us to talk about in particular, uh, our backlog is starting to dry up ever so slightly. So please feel free to contact us on either of those methods and we'll, we'll, uh, we'd be glad to uh, bring a subject up or uh, maybe even if you're if, if it's something that you've got specific technical knowledge about that you want to talk to us about, you know, we might even be able to get you on the podcast. So with that, I think it's fair to say we've reached the end of another show. So uh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And uh, hopefully next time Al will be, uh, will be back with us. It's, it's worth mentioning that he's, uh, he's working on an incident at the moment, which is why he's not with us. He had planned to be with us. So uh, until next time, thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye-bye. See you later. Now we're so